Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Luger. Yes, I'm good. I'm fine. <laughs> Are there any other pronunciations you would like to try? <laughs> um, Linnea Quigley is yes. a cool. Uh, Mark Venturini. Mark Venturini. Yeah, I'm Venturini. good. Venturini. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it should yeah. be fine. Really, oh. the will I <laughs> sneeze or cough during the, that is the question, but we'll be fine. We'll, well, well, I think you nailed you know. Linnea quickly, but our, uh, our character's name, Trash. Trash. I got a joke about that, so yeah. You'll see. Ooh. Well, now's the time because Cody did Jason you, and we've been recording for almost a minute now. We've been recording. Yeah. Just still, <laughs> that still gets you every single time, huh? No, it never gets really me. Amazing. This is the first time it's gotten me. Oh, Usually sure. I say, uh-huh. ah, you're recording within three or four seconds, and then that's the bit. This, you Cody out is... Jason Jason, Cody. Yeah. Nice job. <laughs> Cody is doing expert subterfuge here. He is. I, listen, I don't think this is uh, a battleground where we try to outdo Jason. Um, that's not what this is. This is Try Love, though, and thank you for listening to it. This is a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about the movies we've met and the people we've watched at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast, but more importantly, you can find the Trilon at Trilon.org. Go there um, to the website and to the theater itself. Check out what they're playing. Pick up some tickets, grab some merch, and support cool, independent, artistic-driven endeavors, IMO. Uh, our usual MC, Jason Daphnis, is uh, he's gone this week, in case you haven't noticed. Um, he's out on assignment, as it were. But I'm Cody Narvison. I like it spooky, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Do you ever fantasize about being murdered? I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Chitake Harry. And I have to say, we didn't talk about who was going to take over while Jason was out, really. Cody just sort of, like, stepped up to the plate. Cody like, planted his flag into the fucking moon. Big Dick Narvison. Like, I kind of thought, like, I was the second mate, but or the first mate, but, like, obviously not. Historically, you, know? you, you should be, but you've been... But I, no, uh, I've absolutely you've been, been supplanted, supplanted, and I'm yes. perfectly happy with that. Uh, all hail the new regime, etc. Did, yes. did I step into a mutiny? <laughs> I, you did, I, You yes. may have. In fact, we Yar. may be replacing Jason with you, uh, Natalie, although maybe that's oh, yeah. a spoiler. Let's do I'll it. Accept. Uh, my name is uh, Aaron, and I like death with sex, and you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. Very nice. And once again, this is Cody Big Dick Narvison checking in, I guess. Uh, we also have with us today a very special guest, uh, Natalie Marlin. Natalie, how are you doing today? I, I'm doing quite good. Uh, I am wondering, uh, you mean the movie Lied? <laughs> <laughs> yes! Amazing. Oh, God, that's so good. That's You know what? I, I thought I, you know, I, I thought I was the alpha, you know, with my getting Aaron with the recording. Um, but you like stutter stepped with that line drop. That was amazing. And one of my favorite lines from that movie. Um, we are here today to talk about the return of the living dead from the year 1985. And I think this is about the time where I toss it over to Aaron for the patented Aaron Grossman summary. Do I have that right? 
Yes, indeed. Uh, we are talking about, as mentioned, The Return of the Living Dead, 1985 film directed by Dan O'Bannon. Uh, the film begins with uh, medical supply warehouse foreman Frank Johnson, played by James Karen, uh, showing the facilities to new employee Freddie, played by Tom Matthews. Uh, when he knocks on a barrel of uh, uh, toxic gas, the hazardous chemicals are released into the air, uh, reanimating a corpse stored nearby in a meat locker. Uh, Frank and Freddie, jo- Frank and Freddie, joined by their boss Bert, played by Clue Gulliger. Uh, bring the new zombified corpse to the nearby mortuary of Frank's friend Ernie, played by Don Kalfa, where they burn the body, unintentionally spreading the chemicals into the air, uh, and then the rain, which then begins to raise the dead in a nearby cemetery where Freddy's friends are partying. Uh, Freddy's friends are numerous, uh, but include, and I will name them all, Tina, uh, played by Beverly Randolph, Spider, played by Miguel A. Nunez Jr., uh, Chuck, played by John Philbin, Casey, played by Jewel Shepard, Scuzz, played by Brian Peck, Trash, played by Linnea Quigley, and Suicide, played by Mark Venturini. Uh, Tag yourself, folks. I am Trash. Uh, The film was partially uh, written by John Russo, uh, who had worked with George Romero on Night of the Living Dead. Uh, Russo retained the rights to films featuring the phrase living dead uh which is why then uh, romero would go on to do uh, dawn of the dead um and so this film was thus born uh the film was a critical and commercial success uh and it uh, ended up having four sequels uh cody that's what i've got uh that being said we have a guest natalie uh am i to understand you are a return of the living dead fan I, I am a Return of the Living Dead super fan, uh, to the extent that uh, I had first seen it screened uh, in my previous go-to theater before the Trilon, uh, that is the Brattle Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I went on a whim because I had known people who were very passionate about the movie, uh, fully expecting to find it uh, a very kind of like cheesy fun affair with no real depth or anything like beneath the surface and it it really surprised me at the time because it was in a lot of ways that but it did have a lot that I've found to kind of chew on over the years and it's become the kind of film that uh, I kind of return to near annually now um, both on spooky season as appropriate but also uh fittingly according to some other folks around july 3rd which is when the movie takes place as uh some people have found customary and it's just it's a very fun movie in a lot of ways because it's both a hangout movie but also like one of the most uh playful anti-reaganite movies of its era um and so it makes for a movie that's both just very enjoyable to watch but also like kind of fun to think about on its own terms and how it engages with those themes. Yeah. I, oh, I was going to say, I think that's a pretty good characterization. We all um, seem in agreement. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we're all like, vi- like very visibly yeah. nodding our heads, no, which I'm, you listener cannot tell, but yeah, Harry, you got something. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm just so excited that uh, Natalie characterized it that way, because I was just thinking about this and not to sort of like, I, I this these kind of movies are maybe the most intimidating for me to do on this podcast because I sometimes feel like I not to like I pseudo over intellectualize things and I was so worried about being annoying on this podcast right because like I was going to be the guy who was like oh I want to talk about what this movie thinks about American infrastructure and like like Reaganism and the idea of like capitalist pessimism and um like i was so worried because like you're so right natalie right like that's not like to to characterize the movie only that way kind of does it a big disservice because it's just like a 
fucking blast. Like, I fucking love this movie. It's so fun to watch. But I think that, like, in particular, the way that it works with zombies, the way that it characterizes zombies, and the way that it characterizes what America was before the zombies and what it's going to continue to be, really, I get a lot of mileage out of this. In fact, like, I don't, we'll get into it, but I would go so far as to say, like, I think this is maybe my favorite depiction of like the metaphor of zombie that I've seen in a movie and like zombies are used to do a lot of different things. But um, I got like such goosebumps during that speech that the zombie has where they're just like, Hey, guess what? Like being dead just still hurts and eating brains makes it hurt less. And that's why we want to do that. Like that to me is the scariest shit I've ever heard. Right. It's like this idea that like, Hey, like death is not a release from, sort of like existential or even physical pain. It all just keeps going, <laughs> right? I, like right in the middle of this movie, and it's so well set up by the other themes that are at work in this movie. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. But that is just to say, like, I, I'm so glad you set it up that way because it's like this movie is such a blast, but also like it's like a really smart zombie movie, or at least I think it is. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, you're saying this movie has a lot of brains, right? Right? Uh, pretty, pretty take good. that, Aaron. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I I am also in agreement that the, these kind of films can be very hard to talk about because you do want to. Uh, I you know I I think that uh, uh, pulpy films in general are kind of seen on, on like both ends of the spectrum as either way smarter than people give them credit for, or just like pure action kind of uh, trash. Right. And it, you can kind of choose which lens you want to, to look at a film through. And I think that both have their kind of strengths and weaknesses. I think we, we tend to try and, and kind of dig out like the, the really subtle and nuanced stuff that, that a film is doing. I think this film is doing a lot of that stuff. Um, I think that a, a problem with talking about a film like this, purely from like a, a fun kind of visceral standpoint is that it's kind of hard to intelligently talk about any of that apart from just saying like, it's cool, right? Like that is kind of the problem I have is like, this movie is very cool, but like I, I struggle with how to express just how cool this movie is other than saying it's cool. So uh, a few cool things I like, I think, yes, the the point about the zombies uh, uh, just kind of, eternally just being extremely uncomfortable due the to how much it sucks shit I've being ever dead. heard in a movie dude like it's just like hey yes like, if you die you just go on it just goes on sucking forever it's like oh no like that's the worst that that, that and then i think also another aspect i really loved about this film is just how early you realize that everything is actually fucked. Like there's not, there's not a single moment past minute, maybe 25 where you're like, Oh yeah, no, like there, there's a way they're going to get out of this. You're immediately just like, Oh yes, this, I, I mentally cannot think of a way that the gang will get out of this, uh, uh, shenanigans. You know what I mean? Um, I really dig that. It, it feels very nihilistic that it like clashes very weirdly with the fun kind of camp of the film in a way that I like. Yeah, to, to counter to that point, one of the things that I was, because when I was planning on being on this episode, I, I had a moment of like crisis hit me of being like, well, I know I love this movie, but how, like, how am I going to talk about it without just regurgitating like, oh, no, this is fun. This is like a cool moment here. But it's, I think that um, you're, you're hitting on something, which is that uh, as I was kind of thinking it back today and thinking about how I was going to talk about it here, uh, the thing that kind of struck me is that this is almost kind of in certain ways, like 
very emblematic of what the kinds of best horror in this era can kind of do because um, there's obviously um, take, for example, day of the dead, which I believe came out the same year as this, which is definitely taking a more kind of serious approach to it. albeit still within a genre front. Um, but like this being what it is, it feels like it's, it's very intentionally kind of leaning into the fun and, campy and kind of like b-movie tendencies within the genre but doing so without really sacrificing what it has to say about any of these things going on in the periphery and so because of that it kind of i think it, it cuts a nice balance because it feels like it is doing justice to these things because they're baked into the core of the movie throughout right down to the fact that the main characters that we're following are all these punks who are on the outcast of society and like they're they start the film literally talking about how like they're worried about getting like shot by the police who have told them to like stay away from certain areas um but because it's kind of it's taking this very goofy approach to it it allows itself to lace these things that it wants to say into the film without coming off as didactic or coming off as like very simplistic about it uh to the point where when that ending does hit it feels like it feels like the only way that this movie can end because it's kind of embracing the morbid dark darkly comedic reality of everything that this is building up to it's like yeah, everything is fucked for these people and they're going to like have a fun time through it regardless in some way or try to, but like this is just kind of the inevitable fate that is there for these people. Yeah, and we're all kind of uh, mentioning it, which is, which is great and like this being the type of movie and the type of genre, like it once that um, anxiety is maybe too strong a word, but I, I definitely felt some anxiety. Like when that moment hit of like, you know, when a, a bullet to the brain doesn't kill these fucks, it's just like, Oh, well, like there's like, there's no way any good is going to come. For, like the entire world is, is irreparably uh, changed. And, and so it's like a very, it's a, a very happy pessimistic movie um uh which which is nice and very fun and i think ripe for um revisiting now that i've i mean now that i've seen it this this first time and you know the the i don't know if um if like zombie movies as like a subgenre have really i mean i don't know it, it's that keg has been tapped time and time again and been exhausted time and time again um but like the fact that you can make zombies and a zombie invasion represent really anything you want given the time um like 1985 and and this see i mean it, wikipedia has never steered me wrong before um i will stand by it but like it um the the fact that you know just doing some like light reading about this movie this being the time when like oh th this is the the instance of zombie movies where like feasting on brains and like the resiliency of zombies and like the, the like the fact that they can't be killed so easily like that's you know like this is the movie that did that supposedly um like a very intentional um you know tinkering a retinkering that maybe comes from uh you know the the reagan administration i'm probably not the smartest person to, to dig into that but the fact that this is a movie in a series of other movies that i particularly enjoy about um like doomed constructs through which um like uh, society uh, like society's power and protection are entrusted and just like the failings of those constructs um fail safe uh, from i think 1964 is another one that comes to mind very much not a zombie movie um but like that sort of thing where like 
the fact that this, you know, the first 10 minutes of this movie outlines like, hey, like this is, this is the climate we're in right now. And hey, this uh, crisis happened and it's being entrusted in the shop of like these, this group of people who like should not be tasked with this. And there's a military officer whose entire life, you know, he's living in supreme lush comfort, just waiting for the moment for somebody to tell him where to drop a nuke. Like, it like it could very easily just be like 2022 brain but like also it's not like it's 1985 brain and it's eternal brain and it's wild and um yeah i don't know it just uh natalie you are so right for revisiting this movie um i feel like and like i don't know i it seems to be a very like excuse me like um a popular movie sort of um cult wise like a, a cult sort of classic and it, it absolutely totally makes sense to me I mean, it, it even literally starts in Louisville, Kentucky, right? Which is like a perfect sort of like East Coast Rust right. Belt city in decline that would have been falling apart during the Reagan administration. I guess it's not technically the Rust Belt. I think you're right. Aaron. As, as someone with family now in Louisville, uh, I'm going to take you to task for calling it an East Coast city. But um, uh, it's Eastish. It's Eastern Central it's time. Mid, it's Midwest South kind of. There's a lot of arguments Eastern over Central this time. specifically. Look, it's east of Minnesota. It Look, was a. Th- it's a big bourbon city it's not yeah. you know that yeah but yes it's, uh, it was it was a city in deep decline they uh, were fucked yes <laughs> largely because yes. of the uh, horrific uh abuse of the reagan administration specifically on urban centers um yeah. uh, what i really love about this is that and the zombies being literally impossible to kill which is in incredible subversion of the zombie trope because it completely throws out the window the idea of the stoic badass like the worst scene in every one of these zombie movies is the scene where some guy like can shoot 200 zombies in the head in 14 seconds and in this it's just like nah dog like this is above everybody there's literally no way to stop these things can i can i butt in that there is one scene that does annoy me slightly and it's where the two uh-huh. characters make a run for the car that yeah. one scene is it stretches it just a little yeah. bit from it doesn't just really a make sense that they made it but it's fine uh yeah I'm, i give just, every every zombie movie gets like one of those you and, know what i mean i'll give you they're one so they're so stunningly uh appropriately competent for the rest of the movie like fully half of the sound in this movie is just grown men screaming bloody murder about the things that they're seeing just having and, a teeth bite into their heads or, or that, yeah, but it's perfect, yes. right? It's like that really underscores the fact that like there is a prevailing motif in this movie that is that um, the crises that are becoming America have so far outstripped our ability to respond to them, right? It's like we've got the this insane disease thing like gas that turns people into human zombies and what do we do with it we put it in canisters and shipped it to random places in america right and then like these random people get hold of it what do they do they try to burn it because like they're just trying to cover up cover their own asses only makes things worse that just keeps happening right up until the end right where like they nuke the city an insane response right it's supposed to be an insane response and it doesn't work to the point where they literally play the same footage from when the first zombie um, uprising started. The same zombie comes out of the same grave and opens the same eyes. And it's just like, no, look, it's going to happen over and over again, right? Like we have arrived at this place where like, and what I love so much about that metaphor is like, like you had said, Cody, it's a metaphor for a bunch of different things at once, right? Like it is the sort of like 
urban suburban stratification of cities and of class in America in the 1980s sort of having reached this impossible point where there is going to be no reconciliation between these things and class stratification is only going to get worse and worse. It represents literally the nuclear idea, this idea that like, hey, in a world with nukes, like human beings are pretty much predestined to destroy each other. And it's even sort of especially the zombies themselves, sort of almost existential, right? Where it's like, hey, like, humans are just straight up not equipped to be humans. Like, we are not supposed to know about death. That was a pro. That's that's an issue. And the fact that we know about death is sort of, like, irreconcilable in an existential way with living a good life. (laughs) Um, And so, like I said, yeah, it's like, it's perfectly nihilist on so many different levels and in such a satisfying and, and strange way, I guess. Just almost in an in an honest way and in a um a very punk way i guess yeah i as as i mentioned before i think the the fact that they're punks is certainly no accident within the ideology of the film uh i do want to like go into two different diverging threads because this this discussion has given me a lot to go off of but um to to bounce off of what cody was saying earlier uh the more i've been thinking about it thinking about this movie's relation to if you were to think of, of it within like how it relates to the original night of the living dead uh i know this is possibly going to be in a popular comparison here because i know that the the group here is a little cold on it, but um, having just watched uh, Halloween three season of the witch for the first time, I kind of see a lot of parallels in the same sort of vein of that's a movie where the movie that set the core foundations exists within the universe is openly referenced by the characters. And it's telling this completely isolated story. That's a little goofier in tone, a little kind of like, bigger scale in terms of like what it's trying to say, like very explicitly about uh, the the heart of America with that one in terms of capitalism with this one in terms of um, what it has to say about authority figures, which is uh, actually perfectly dovetails right into the point that I wanted to talk after what Harry was saying, um, which is, I think to me, part of why the tone really works in this with everything that seems to be going on under the film's surface is because so much of the humor itself is directly tied into what it has to say about authority figures at large. The A good chunk of the film's first act is essentially just what happens if an authority figure who has... Uh, control over a deadly substance that he's not supposed to have, has it get loose and he's the entire time trying to sweep it under the rug. And then his like higher up is also trying to do that is basically taking under like basically colluding with what's heavily implied to be an ex Nazi. Uh, There's a lot of just uh, (laughs) there's, there's a lot within the stretches of the film where the characters that we're following who are the authority figures who aren't the punks are basically useless and they're not really capable of doing the job that they're kind of entrusted with in terms of protecting the more vulnerable people around them um, and just kind of really fucking things up continually past the point of no return, like worse and worse. Um, And then that kind of feeds into once things eventually do break out beyond their control and it's, kind of invaded the the general area around them uh there's that running joke repeatedly of uh first paramedics and then cops repeatedly getting swarmed by zombies which is my my favorite recurring joke of the movie um and it 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 becomes this kind of thing where again the kind of impossibility of how to fight the zombies in this movie gets to the point where 
the by the third time uh that joke happens you're just kind of like yeah no they're all just doomed the second they get out of their car uh, it's it's you you start to kind of realize that authority figures are basically useless in these scenarios and actual scenarios of um of trouble and conflict because that's not what they are uh that's not supposed to do exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh and then it, again that feeds right into the ending too which is uh once you've gone through that chain of command and it's okay so the like local authority figures can't work and then like the authority figures with force can't work uh the authority figures who uh the military in this case who are there to uh contain the situation not only are so reckless with human lives and just flat out just killing a bunch of people without any second thought but again like harry said it doesn't work at all it just makes the problem worse it's um it it i think one of the things that the the movie and its focus does right is the fact that it is so thoroughly about that and by having those figures contrasted with the punks you're very much seeing the kind of conflict of uh outlook in terms of how things go and how they're able to handle things and it, it becomes this this film where um, you're getting this perspective into how like all sides of this power structure are kind of handling this particular kind of catastrophe. Yeah, that's and honestly, the that's a great extrapolation of something I was trying to put together while watching the movie, um, which was just like, and it's not to like read too closely into things that happen that like maybe shouldn't require that much attention. Like I was thinking a lot about, you know, Oh, like, what is it? What is it? Does it mean anything rather that the people who are responding to the situation, the, the, the members of authority um, are like caught off guard by the, the incoming hordes. And like, it definitely means something The the, the fact that only the, you know, the punks, the, the, the non-authority figures, you know, it, it's paramedics and up display no sense of like real, concern um you know about um like the situation or, or impending peril or like you know they're, they're not uh quite matching <laughs> emotionally um you know the folks who are like bringing this thing to you know to their attention like again the, the i think the the text of the uh, the text of the movie um and just like kind of explaining it now it makes a lot more sense um maybe in the moment procedurally it it doesn't kick in as much but like you know the it the fact that you know the further kind of visually the you know, the further you go up the chain of authority and it's like well they're getting fucked and they're getting fucked because they're caught off guard or they're not they're not displaying this like the same awareness and concern for their own lives that like i mean you know i i guess you know the the punks are very you know they they have they have awareness of of like the fleetingness of life um and they joke you know their joke is maybe too strong where they they talk about death and there's a character literally nicknamed suicide um and so they they have this sort of like awareness of death and life and like the fleeting like the just the flimsy nature between the two that no other um characters or, or strata uh you know tears of people um you know in the movie seem to display and that's i mean kind of a motif um in other uh zombie works uh but i'm i'm far from an expert on that i don't know harry does any of that hit you in a way yeah, well, I mean, I was I was going to talk about the remarkable sympathy that this movie has for a lot of different groups, despite being sort. It like it. 
I think that the comparison is is really obvious, but it reminded me so much of Repo Man, right? Like it feels like an Alex oh, for sure. Cox zombie movie in so many ways, right? And it's like it it like backdoors this surprising empathy for a lot of different classes, except for the authority figures, right? Because it's like this is basically a, a the nihilist punks were right movie, right? It's like the, these are people who are trolling around and they're like, yeah, there's no reason to get a job. There's no reason to get do anything. We're all going to die. There is no future. Literally no future is graffitied on the um, the graveyard cemetery gates. We're just going to go party in the graveyard and, and sort of like almost like openly laugh about the fact that we are so fucked. It's not even funny, right? Like all you can do is laugh. And then it's like, hey, like that was true before the goddamn zombies happened, right? Like this is a movie that looks like it takes place in post-apocalyptic America before the first zombie rises out of the ground, right? Like literally like these, these sets look like a fallout video game or something. Right. Um, and, uh, I, so it, it's a big The Punks Were Right movie. It also like has weird, genuine empathy for the zombies. Just the idea that the zombies are like, they're in so much pain that they're willing to compromise everything just for a chance to no longer feel that pain. Um, and there's this great idea that sort of like the, the pain of being human uh, or of suffering can so far outstrip your ability to cope with it. Um and in like that created two really affecting moments in this movie. The first of which is when um, the uh, the boss, I think it's uh, uh, Burt Wilson himself, he he throws himself into the incinerator, which is obviously a terrible idea because that's what starts the zombie like infestation over again. But he's he's suffering so badly, right? And he's about to die, and like we almost can't help but sympathize with that and then there's of course like the zombie itself talking about how like hey like we just all want brains because it it like alleviates the suffering that we have and like especially when you think about the fact that this takes place in louisville and during the 80s when you're thinking about urban decay it's like oh they're straight up talking about cities right where it's like hey like these undead quote-unquote cities like these cities that are being abandoned by the sort of like rise of neoliberalism and the advancement of sort of like like coastal centers of economy they're going to go on being places where people live (laughs) and that's gonna suck really bad for those people you know and it's like it's it's actually like very affecting and very prescient that this movie made a zombie movie that is about that um and i i really like that like it's a it's a weird movie because it's like it's creating this very good like defense of pessimism Right. And I love a movie that is a defense of pessimism, especially in the 1980s. Right. It like genuinely feels countercultural um, in a really interesting way. Yeah, um, this might be digging uh, this. This might be possibly like looking a little too deeply into things. But um, to, to Harry's point, uh, I think there is something very intentional about how the film is uh, constructing like the first few sets that we see before like we really get into the full zombie meat of things in that uh, when it's just uh, Frank and Freddy in the warehouse, it's like a very kind of nondescript warehouse. It's, it's very much um, it looks very much like the sort of thing you would find in kind of like any American city. And the way that they're talking about death is very much uh, this kind of like abstracted thing where it's, it relate, it relates to the, the bodies that are around them and that they're dealing with, but it never relates to themselves. They never talk about death within themselves. Whereas with the punks, they're 
talking about it from the very first moment that they're on screen, they're joking about it. um, And they're like willingly going into this wrecked graveyard that has no future plastered onto it, presumably because they just, at that point, society has kind of failed them so much that they just don't have any fear of that anymore. They're just, they're, they're the sort of people who are like, yeah, we've been screwed over by everything else. Why would we worry about going into here? Um, and and to relate that that point about the pain of being alive that we've been talking about with that one zombie, that's where I feel that um, there's something interesting to me about the fact that it's um, the the zombie that kind of takes the most precedence is uh, trash pretty soon after she's zombified because she has this big monologue about fantasizing about all these different ways that she's dying, talking about like the worst way for her to go for dying. And that ends up happening with her. Like it's this sort of thing that she's acknowledging that she is um, openly talking about as this thing that she has been thinking about and knows that it's going to be terrible. And then it does come true, but then it almost kind of empowers her in this own sort of way where suddenly she's then able to uh, just be able to reduce that pain by just, chomp it on a bunch of brains <laughs> no totally and i uh oh sorry here did you have something oh no i was just gonna say you're you're so right right like she's weirdly empowered and and it's almost like now that the worst has happened there's there's this really great sort of like not literally eat the rich but you know i'm i'm getting there i'm with you <laughs> hey yeah um you, yeah you, you i don't know if you're jumping into this for the first time um this is who we are, baby. Get used to it. Um, and this, uh, the focus on, um, I mean, trash, phenomenal character. Uh, and I guess that kind of, um, the, the talk about like physical form and like, uh, with her, especially like the focus on her own body. Um, and I, I initially had my notes of like, oh, let's, you know, talk about, um, uh, I had creature design, which feels all wrong now because I mean, there, there are like so many different ways in which the undead are characterized. And as we've been sort of going, it, it feels important, especially thinking about that. There are two characters who literally undergo transformations that we see over the course of, of the film. Like it makes a lot of sense. And it's a, a component that I am starting to really um, like latch onto and enjoy from this movie that like this, like it's a process. Like it's not necessarily um, like a flipping from one state, you know, human to non-human or alive to undead to whatever. Like the fact that we see these things in um, so many, like you know, so many different stages. There's the the being from the tank where the you know the gas and originally came out of the one who's just saying like brain, it, like it looks maybe the least human out of all. Tarman, of them. Um, I think. I think Tarman, the- yes. Yes, would later become like a a series mascot. Uh, I've not seen the sequel films, but that's my understanding. Oh, well, hey, justice for Tarman, I guess. Um, Tarman, yeah, uh, yeah, obvious obvious, um, showstopper, spotlight, etc. But then you also have the corpse hanging in storage who looks like, you know, a a very... like a much more human representation of this type of transformation. Um, you've got the, the dog sliced in half who comes alive, the butterflies on the, that are pinned to the picture that start flapping around really nice, like production design touch. Um, the skeletons popping up from the cemetery. And then some of them are, they literally just look like people with gray face paint on. Um, and of course are two of our heroes who get blasted with the, you know, stuff in the, the stuff in their faces and, you know, it all goes downhill from there. So I guess, yeah, I don't, I, 
I don't know if that's if that works as like a point to jump off of or, or like what people thought about that, but just the the fact that it this movie does operate more on a spectrum and less so much as like, hey, you got infected or you got hit with gas in the face or you got nuked or whatever the the case is, and now you're this other thing. Um, the fact that there are like multiple shades of it um, is almost more uh, frightening, if, if frightening is the right word. Yeah, I think it's also because um, obviously it kind of, for the most part, plays into the the sort of like Romero school of the the zombies are just kind of people who just happen to come up from the ground and they resemble somewhat close to their physical forms. But like um, with Charman specifically, it's like because he's coming from the tank and we see in the like opening credits the kind of like melting process of that kind of corpse. He's this completely different entity because he's this kind of chemically preserved being that is like melting down but i i did have uh actually as a point to talk about um like one of the things i find just really fascinating on a craft level is the fact that there is like tarman included like some really just cool inventive like puppetry here and he's like the main instance of it and then the kind of bisected older like a zombie woman talking about brains being the other one but I, I i do like that this movie is kind of like unafraid to just kind of have fun with that kind of craft detail of things and it's not just pure we're just going to have a bunch of people running around it's it it delves into this uh it kind of gets beyond that in terms of being like well how can we like keep making things kind of like visually like inventive and mix things up as it goes along. Yeah. These might be the most human zombies have ever been right. Like after our, our main character, our would be main character, uh, Freddie is, um, is zombified. He like continues to say personal things about his girlfriend, even as he's trying to eat her brain. Right. He's literally like, like appealing to her, like, Oh baby, I love you. You got to come down here so I can eat your brain. And it's like, like zombies are just a faction, right? It's just like, Oh, these are just humans who, who rose up again. And now they just have this other motivation that happens to supersede all of their other. I mean, there's the incredible joke that keeps happening. Um, it's related to the one that you uh, shouted out, Natalie. But it's like every single time after the zombies kill off uh, whoever they kill off, one of the zombies goes over to the radio on like the paramedics or the the cops, and it's just like send more cops, and it and it works, right? And then they get more cops, and the cops get immediately eaten by the zombies. It's hilarious, but also like it's to- you're totally right cody right it's like there there is this idea that sort of like if death is not like if is if death is not the end then that is sort of like uh, the final binary breakdown right it's like now all bets are off right it's like like zombies are still people like dying is not really like dying uh people are not like people it's a whole it's a whole thing there's there's a lot to unpack there for sure and i think it it really like lends itself well to the, a lot of the prevailing uh, like sort of like very dark class metaphors and American metaphors that are playing out throughout this. Yeah. And to, to thank you for that, Harry, because something that came to mind, like literally after I had finished talking earlier is the fact that um, we, we've been talking about kind of whether or not this movie has like a pessimistic outlook and kind of like where it's eventually leading toward um but the the thought came to me that um, the the film's soundtrack, which for the most part fits in with the the kind of punk aesthetic, it has a lot of these like formative like eighties punk bands that were kind of like having a moment at the time, um, and 
for the most part, they're kind of just uh, very on the nose about things. But um, the the particular one that's been associated with this movie, uh, Party Time, uh, is at first, uh, I believe, just like playing in the background while the punks are just like partying in the cemetery. And then it comes up two more times where the very first zombie pops out of the ground. And then again, right at the very end of the movie, which I think I think that is kind of the perfect uh tone capper for the film because it it obviously is the thing that is um kind of punctuating the movie on a note where it would have otherwise been very grim and bleak and kind of lets the audience like knowingly think oh this is a like very kind of like funny like last bit to end on and kind of diffuses the the morbidity of it but it also kind of feeds into this idea that you're talking about about what if zombification isn't the end of life and what if it's almost kind of like class restructuring uh because in this instance like it's almost kind of like the film is ending by saying like yeah the government just like made things so much fucking worse but they're in inadvertently almost kind of like creating this kind of class uprising and this ability for more people to partake in this sort of act of partying by overthrowing the authority figures yeah the underclass the underground class sorry oh my god harry you've tapped into something um i was just gonna say that that kind of branching off of natalie's point about the i don't know like the the vibe of this movie the kind of varied aesthetic that kind of helps keep it kind of fresh that i i do think that this is i've only been to one horathon at the trilon unfortunately um, and I don't think anybody on the pod here was able to snag a ticket for this year. Is my, my correct? Very unfortunate. Nope. Uh, this film does feel like the kind of like platonic ideal of like a camp horror film. And that like, uh, I know Natalie, oh you mentioned God, our, our negative reviews of Halloween oh. three. We have since, I think, come around on, on Halloween three and said, we probably fucked that one up. Um, but last year there were a lot of like totally very similar films like Phantasm two, for example, um, even like, I mean, Critters 2, uh, even something like Day of the Dead, I think is like uh, not as humorous, but uh, certainly maybe uncomically satirical, maybe, uh, or at least like politically uh, kind of satirical. Um, I think this movie is like, I'm kind of curious what they have uh, in store for the horror this year, because this feels like one that they would absolutely put in there. And now I'm like, what are they what are they gonna do? Are they gonna Dude, theme it can, in a certain manner? Can you imagine what a fucking grand slam this would be at a horror? This would be inc- this would be you a could, great like opener. This oh, would any be time you closer. could slot it in anywhere. And it it would be yes. like, holy shit, like it's perfect. I will say to, to give away part of the game is that uh I, I had mentioned this in the the notes that we we're having as we we're like silently chatting to each other when one another is speaking, but uh I am out of town this weekend and so was not able to attend this in a theater but i I sad i didn't because my my first experience in that theater like having it screen on 35 and having like a very sort of reactive crowd is a very fun experience and to me almost kind of gives the movie a completely different sort of vibe because it becomes this almost communal way of uh engaging with it in that way um which, which again, like it, I think you really nailed it, uh, Natalie. But, but it's like weirdly by the end of this movie, the zombies are sort of the protagonists, right? Like, and and it's because like we we have broken down this idea that that being a zombie just means being brain dead, and we have broken down this idea that there are good guys in the government, and we've broken down the idea that that the zombies are ever going to stay down, and so like it becomes this weird like 
highly pessimistic party spirit, but it really sets the it sets the bar right for particularly for a, uh, like a very specific kind of uh, political radicalism, which is like yes, the government is one hundred percent only out to get you. Like we just depicted this in this movie, and yes, we are screwed. The hour is very late, but they can't keep us down, right? Like there is almost something in a weird way uplifting about this movie because it's sort of like well, like we're fucked. We've been fucked. Like we're going to continue to be fucked, but like, listen, whatever happens to us, it's not going to be what they want to happen to us. <laughs> and there, there's something great about that too. Um, in a really, really funny and kind of ahead of its time way, I think. Um, I, I do want to say mostly cause I don't really know where else to throw this into our discussion. I was just looking over like brief things that I had jotted down in, in sort of like a, a possible thing to talk about. But, um, we kind of engaged with this sooner is that, um, for a movie about a zombie outbreak, uh, I'm, I'm thinking in comparison to say like some of the Romero films in this, the zombie outbreak itself doesn't really hit until like the midpoint of this movie and so like like we're talking about it becomes this almost kind of like very sudden uprising whereas like the first 40 to 45 minutes of the movie are just basically this like core group of like two and then four characters trying to deal with the situation that's getting out of hand and it becomes this this kind of comedy of errors where it becomes uh you're seeing in real time kind of how things are breaking down and it becomes i think it by setting the stage there, it allows the film to feel like that by the end of it, because you have the sense of like where things are starting from the status quo. And then all of a sudden how they're kind of tumbling out of control and like really kind of upending it. Yeah. And that's like, that's when the movie is at its most repo man, anti-authoritarian, right? Is that we've got Freddie who is sort of like the character POV. He's being walked through the ropes in this sort of condescending way by this kind of wise guy, Burt Wilson. And then Burt Wilson, like he kind of tries to scare him with this story about the zombies in the basement. And like, we think that he's pulling his leg, right? Like, because of course, like this is hazing for the new guy at work. Turns out he's not. Turns out like there are just 100% like frozen zombies in the basement. Um, and like this all kicks off because he just like kicks the can that the zombie is in, right? And then, that shot where he hits where he hits so that barrel, funny, and it, it is one of the most. It's like slapstick humor. It's like yeah. so. It's so well, comedic, mean, particularly because it's like, oh, what are you talking about? This is never going to leak. It's made by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and then he gives it a kick, and it just like immediately like made in the good old USA, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh no. Um, but like, I think a really good point, Natalie, is also that like they kind of trigger the zombie apocalypse themselves, right? By trying to burn the zombie's body, which like you have to be sympathetic for, but also it's just sort of like this rolling sort of counter narrative to the idea that like the zombies aren't even really the problem, right? It's, it's just how we're all going to react to the zombies that kind of make it an even worse problem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause I, I think in a lot of other zombie media, it becomes the sort of thing where it's the zombies are a form of inevitability. They become the sort of circumstance that is foisted upon the main characters that they then have to deal with. Whereas this, it becomes the, the, the way that it's set up is that it's entirely of those main characters own volition. It becomes the sort of thing where it, it 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 isn't an inevitability because it's just it's from their own hubris and it's from their own misunderstanding of how safe they are in this kind of like authoritarian perch that they're in yeah and this complete inability on all levels to address the root of the problem right like even and especially the u.s government right where like they just sent a nuke down and they were just like well 
problem solved. And it's just like, no, turns out that like, you don't understand what's going on here. Um, and I, you know, there are obvious uh, conclusions to draw from that as well. <laughs> and I, I guess to further, I don't know if it makes it more tragic or more humorous, the fact that, you know, this movie starts out, it's this, you know, you hate to see it, this this rebellious um, young young punk got a job and, you know, pour one out for the homies. But like, even so, like his his foreman, um, Frank, I think uh, this character was, you know, Frank is, you know, he's he's jovial, he's, you know, cracking wise. Um, he like tells him not to cuss once, but even so, that that was after like st- like shit started hitting the fan. But just like you know what, pack some skeletons in a box, you know. Oh, you know, we got another hour's worth of work. I'll tell you some stories. It's like we found this nice slice of like um corporate capitalistic america that was just just made rotten by this whole this, this whole um this whole hierarchy this whole structure and, and it's so good that like uh, repo man uh, um like it's so sleazy that his job is so sleazy the way that they're talking about the cadavers and like all of the medicine it's just like jesus like this is some like fly by night operation at one point he's like oh yeah every skeleton comes from india and they all have perfect teeth and i'm like bro what are you they talking all have perfect about teeth. <laughs> yeah and he's like yeah we're thinking that there's a skeleton farm in india and obviously he's just pulling his leg but it is like there's this really great sort of like like framing pessimism right because it's like this punk goes to get the job he's thinking it's going to be all straight laced it turns out everybody there is just as sleazy as he is right and like just as sort of like unequipped what's happening yeah yeah and in its own way then again that feeds into this sort of idea of this the course of the movie becomes its own sort of leveling where it's like all of these preconceptions about who is is deemed like more fit for society or are less of a, a target for authoritarian violence in this case, they're all about the the same in terms of like how they're like it, it becomes the the way that um I think I think what I'm trying to say is the way that um both Frank and Freddie eventually are characterized is that they become almost kind of like the same person by the end of the movie, albeit like Frank is basically at a certain point, just kind of like putting himself out of his own mercy. But um, it becomes the sort of thing where once there's this kind of like leveling event, the, the hierarchy of power there doesn't really exist anymore. And it just becomes about their own survival. Yeah. That's so well said. Or like, if they're not the same person, the, to, to the most pertinent point, like they're on the same side, right? Like literally it's them against the man. Like at very early on, one of the punks is like, no, we can't call the cops. The cops are just going to kick our asses. And then like the sort of straight laced or like the business owner people are like, oh no, that's not going to happen because it's us. And then lo and behold, at the very end of the movie, the owner of this, um, medical supply warehouse, um, he, calls the the number on the side of the can and, and what happens? The soldiers kick their ass. They nuke them, right? It's like they're all just punks. It's everybody's just a punk unless you're holding the switch, right? Like and that's that's another sort of like very trenchant class message that this movie contains within it. I do like that line where he's like, oh why didn't you call us earlier? Like what were you guys doing? It's like, yeah, no, they're you're gonna nuke it, right? Like we we, we know what's going on here. Yeah. To, to that point, I think one last thing I have to say, because I feel like I'm I'm kind of like running through a lot of the points that I've, I've been through, but um, I don't know how everybody else feels. But um, 
that that's one kind of like sneaky point of the structure that like on previous viewings had like irked me is that like right after the opening credits roll and we've got like our introduction to like a couple of the main characters, we go to this uh, powerful figure in the army who's like coming home from a day of work and he's like setting up shop like at home in case he needs to be like remotely contacted about uh, this emergency that has just been unleashed. And then he disappears from the rest of the movie until the very end, um, which normally would like irk me. But by this viewing, I was kind of like, Oh, that's kind of like a neat little like sneaky thing where it's like, there's this other character just waiting in the wings to leap into his own form of action. And the movie just doesn't acknowledge him because he's just kind of sitting back in this like cushy position and has thinks he has the solution to everything. And then as soon as he jumps in, he's messed things up beyond like what anybody else has done. (laughs) Right. That narrative disconnect between like the rest of the action, the driving narrative force of the movie and like his own station again, like very prim and proper house with like a, you know, a partner who, you know, I'm sure they both hate each other um, or he resents her. I don't know. They have some unpleasant, he's all right lamb chops for lunch or whatever the fuck he says that asshole um but yeah like that's so that's so important and it plays um uh, you know regrettably but favorably into the point of you know like um authority figures and and structures um just like completely making everything worse um they're not on uh they're not on the ground they're not on the ground level they're not they're not on the ground as as things are happening they they, they don't know what it's like he doesn't know what it's like he yeah. all he knows is that he, he's told to drop a bomb and he does and so and, well, and, every, everything worked out perfectly right and and one of my favorite brick jokes that is just like almost blink it, that you miss it is that he's in san diego that motherfucker is living it up in california in a california mansion right yes. and then he he nukes something on the other side of the country sight unseen right it's just like ah that was his job he was just like literally his whole job was sit in this mansion be mean to my wife and then when i received the call hit the button right and it's it's hilarious and uh also i would say that um i watched this for free on tubi shout outs to tubi that did mean that there were commercials and so like by the time i got to this guy's second scene i was like wait who the fuck is this guy and then i was like oh <laughs> like because it really does feel like he's in two scenes right so he's like he's yeah. in like the second scene of the movie and then he's in like the last scene of the movie and i was like i straight up forgot that there was like a, a military dude who was like waiting to end all of this and like it's it's perfect because it's like, oh, no, they were doomed from literally before this even started. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it has hit the point now where it's like on multiple viewings. Uh, if I'm not really like thinking about it, when it hits that first scene where he shows up, I straight up forget that he's the guy from the end and that it's coming. And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, this is this is like introduced like really soon into things. But I feel like, again, that adds to the the subversive just overall feel of the movie where it's kind of the way that it falls into place is you're expecting him to be like almost this kind of tertiary protagonist in this own sort of way where it's setting you up to be like, Oh, he's going to have a big important role in this. And we're going to like cut back to him at some point. And then the film eventually does that, but it just kind of like completely minimizes your expectations of it. It becomes, he's just kind of there to do this one thing and exit the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and like they even say like they're on the phone with him and he's like, it sounds like they've got some kind of contingency they planned for this. And we're thinking like, Oh, are they going to release some sort of spore in the air? That's going to de zombify the people. And we're going to have like a really nice ending. And then it's like, nah, dog, like they just dropped a Louisville nuke. And then he, and then like they cut over to that guy. We never see the characters again because they were vaporized by the nuke. And he's like, yeah, pretty close to optimal uh, placement boss. Uh, I think under 4,000 casualties, we did it. Uh, and so like, like mission complete let's all go home yeah 
<sighs> Let's all go home. Um, I mean, not preemptively. You know, we we can stick around here a little bit. Uh, any any other lingering threads um, before we head into the the junk drawer esque content? Um, any big uh, meteor points um, uh, with a brain esque texture that we wanted to to touch on? Uh, shout outs to suicide, I guess. I really love his scene where he monologues about how like nobody understands me. Like you think all of this is, is just for fun. This is a statement. And then he gets his brain eaten like a scene later because like, of course he would, right? It's like, you know, the minute the punk guy is like, you know, actually I have a coherent ideology that I would like to explain to you. That dude's getting his head bitten off, right? Like that's just how these things work. So shout outs to our, uh, our ill begotten friend. Although he was very, very rude to trash, uh, which a cr- crazy thing to do IMO, but you know, yeah. uh, I will say kind of tying on to the, and this is just a very short point. Uh, I don't know whether I like portrayals of Reaganite politics, uh, to be incompetent or incredibly competent. Cause I feel in this movie, like obviously the, the military general is not doing something that we're all big fans of, but he is, he is portrayed as, like kind of hyper competent, especially on that phone call. Like he is asking the exact questions that he needs to know, right? He's asking how many acres is the cemetery? Uh, you know, he's asking all of those very technical questions. I can't decide for a, for a film like this that is satirical in its approach, whether I kind of dig that more or whether I like the, I don't even know what the, you know, the kind of the bumbling portrayal of, of Reagan and his cronies and his, his political uh, instincts. I, I don't know. I, it's tough. Yeah, I could go either. I mean, that's that's kind of like yeah. I, I I to me that's almost kind of why I like this the way it is. Is that like it portrays especially like the lower level figures as like incompetent and bubbling, bumbling. But once it gets to like the higher ups, it portrays them as like deadly competent. Yes, it is right. competent. It just doesn't care about the other people. No, right. You know it's, what I mean? Like they're no, exactly. Yes. They're very very good at their jobs. Their jobs are just not what we thought they were. Right, it, the, it's like, the costs it, are not their concern. Yes. Yeah, well, it's like it turns out that like, oh, like the government is looking out for you, and they're good at it. It's like, no, the government is good at it, but what they're good at is not what is not looking out for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, my my very last point before we turn it over to said drunk junk drawer is um, just that trash is an icon and a hero, and it is just very fun to me that. Uh, Linnea quickly not only is getting this like little mini series here at the Trilon, but essentially this is like the role that she is most well known for in that she is this almost kind of like supporting role that the film that like kind of disappears as much from the film by the midway point. Um, and yet is like one, she is like one of the most uh, repeated forms of like iconography in terms of uh just the the imagery associated with this movie along with like it's like her and tarman and that's basically it but she like makes the most with everything that she's doing and she's very charismatic and uh the the characterization of her is very fun extremely fun um yeah character presence and like I was bothered. It, I don't know. It just made me sad that the fact that she, um, you know, as liberated as she was, like she got hurt by the acid rain that was like pelting her skin. And like the fact that she wasn't wearing shoes meant she got like stuck in the mud and then immediately devoured, which is like, again, maybe reading into it a little too much, but you know what? Um, zombie. Doesn't trash the trash character? Doesn't like she, she become the sexy zombie? Isn't yeah. that? 
Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, look, that's the best ending for anybody in this film. Right, exactly. That's badass. Yeah, yeah that's great. Right, right. In, in the like, end, it was maybe a blessing, which is maybe wrong to say, but well, I don't know. It seems like she's having fun. So. The person the way who that, becomes the cool zombie is the... Right, yes, that's uh, what you want to be. And also, like, she said that the worst way that she could die was to be ripped apart by a bunch of, like, old dead things, but, like, she was clearly... That was a sexual <laughs> fantasy looked for her. pretty... <laughs> she was pretty... Like, I'm not saying she was... Yeah, no, I mean, but, like, you know... Bad way she, to go, but she looked fine near the end of the film. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> she she kind of has the the most kind of ideal fate, which is that she gets to have like a fun, sexy time and like like really be like having like what seems to be a blast and like liberate with her own body, and then just like gets to do fun shit with that once she's dead. Ideal fate. <laughs> exactly. Tbh. Uh, the only uh, call out, uh, the only other, I guess, note I had, um, was with regards to Spider, um, shouting out one of the other punks who the moment of euphoria I felt when I realized that the actor who played Spider, uh, Miguel A. Nunez Jr. also plays the quote unquote voodoo maestro in Scooby-Doo 2002, I tell you, felt felt pretty damn good um i i cheered alone in my apartment it was that level of happiness uh spider is my probably second favorite character behind trash and especially for how he takes charge in the later sections of the movie he becomes the kind of like other than freddy like the punk that has like the most presence and um he also gets one of my my favorite lines which is when uh Everybody in the crematorium is trying to argue with one of the punks who's uh, Freddy's girlfriend, whose name escapes me, but um, they're arguing with her whether or not she should, like, barricade him in, like, another room, and she's, like, protesting, and Spire just comes in and is like, you know, that's really a good idea. <laughs> it, was, yeah, it was a really good reading. Yeah, he's he's great. And also, like, he looks like he's in the fucking Warriors. He looks so badass in this movie, and, like, kind of the other punks don't really, but, like, Spider at least has absolutely got it going on in, like, a big way. In a, in a big way, indeed. In a big, bad way. Um, and you know what? I think we've got it going on in a big way as well with, with this discussion uh, that just passed the hour mark. And so um, I guess without for this is weird. I didn't think about this handoff. Um, Harry, uh, I think it's on you to to lead us into our our final segment of of the show. Uh, Take it away, Harry. I could do it. Okay, okay, thank you, thank you. Natalie. And this, I would just say that, like, this is why we really need Jason, right? Because, like, the the burden of introducing Cody's movies cannot fall on Cody. Like, that's that's absurd. <laughs> oh, I, I will he, be muting myself right about now. He does so much already. But yes, this is our final segment. Thank you, Natalie. If you would like to join me, it's the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Oh wow, that was beautiful. Beautiful, oh, awesome. Really, thank better you. Better than Jason being here. I mean, let's. I mean the fucking you know, sorry Cody. Yeah, he's, no, he's always off pitch. No, that's a fair call out. Uh, no, we miss you, Jason. Um, but but thank you, uh, Natalie and Harry, for that um, reanimated introduction. Um, I should have thought of a better adjective. But today we'll be rebranding the segment as Return Love. And if you couldn't tell, I, uh, when I can't think of good wordplay for the segment, I always fall back on the template of blank love. Uh, and if you're listening to this episode, um, uh, you know, as after it's been released and think of a better segment name as we go, please don't tweet at us or at me because it will hurt my feelings. Uh, but what I'm going to do is present a series of prompts related to movies that are indeed returns. Uh, after each 
statement, uh, I will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond. You'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer. And the person with the most points at the end will, you guessed it, they will win. Uh, as always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here. Um, so use your noodles and not your Googles. Fair warning. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump in. And we're going to start uh, with this first one with a work that is um, absolutely, positively a movie, and that's Twin Peaks The Return, uh, which was directed by David Lynch. Uh, how tall is David Lynch, Aaron? Uh, he seems tall. Um, <clears throat> six six two. Uh, six now mm-hmm. i feel like he's his height may have decreased he's an old fella you know what i mean i don't know i'm gonna go six two six two okay i was gonna say you didn't you didn't bring in withering bones as a variable in any of our other instances of this question why why david lynch isn't he the oldest he one said he said he, he said too know, much usually ask like what? george clooney who you know his, his posture is quite good he you know oh, he sure. hasn't started hunching over a lot but yeah, yeah six two i'm going six two yeah David Lynch has the posture of me who records podcast episodes from his couch. Um, Harry, how tall do you think David Lynch is? Damn, if David Lynch is 6'2", he should have stopped making American Surrealist films and started hooping. <laughs> he tall as hell. Uh, I don't Slick. think that's true, though, because I feel like I, compared to Kyle MacLachlan, he has got to be several inches shorter, right? So I'm going to go with uh, 5'10". All right, Harry's going with 5'10". I'm locking it in. And Natalie, what's your guess for how tall David Lynch is? Uh, my thought is in the perfect middle ground of this, where I've I believe I've heard that he is somewhat tall, but not like super tall. So I'm going to say exactly six feet. All right, exactly six feet is the guess. Going off a few sources on the internet, um, many a wide multitude, a uh, variety of sources. Uh, David Lynch is reportedly five foot eleven inches, which. If precedent is to be taken into consideration when two guesses are equidistant, I give out a point to each. So Harry and Natalie both get a point for that. Um, I, you know what, Aaron? um, uh, I just uh, lose. uh, Just uh, minus a point for me at that point. No, no, no. Uh, Negative one. You know what? Uh, For what it's worth, a Narvis and Brownie point to you um, because I would love a world where David Lynch is six foot two and should be hooping. He's um, not even even six feet. He's not even nah. a tall king. David what what you know, about uh, David Lynch it, makes him seem like a tall king to you? He, I just you don't know, understand this characterization. Yeah, he's he a seems like kind of a lanky. He seems like kind of a lanky, you know, one of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. Hey, that's fair. Um, you know what? Hey, David Lynch, we know you're listening. Um, tell us, uh, come on the pod and tell us how tall you were when you were making Twin Peaks. I bet you were like six foot five, my dude. Also, um, I, bet, I bet he's weirdly good at basketball. I could buy that. You know what I yeah, mean? It's like like how Adam Sandler is like pretty good at basketball. Like I'm sure David Lynch isn't as good at basketball as Adam Sandler is, but Adam I Sandler just only wears ass. basketball shorts, and after doing that for like decades, it, you, just you just naturally start to yeah. get good at basketball. Yeah. All right. Well, David Lynch, you've been challenged. Uh, you know what to do. Uh, for now, we're going to move on to number two, uh, and for this one, we'll pivot to Volver, which uh, first is Spanish for return. Um, uh, and at this point, it's probably my favorite film by Pedro Almodovar. Uh, and, and I don't know if y'all know this, just, you know, hey, get ready for this shocking bit of news. In many IMDb profiles, they've got a section dedicated to trademarks of that particular artist. And what I'm going to do here is list three Almodovar trademarks per IMDb. Two of them are going to be real. One of them is going to be fake and your job will be to pick out the fake trademark. So I'm going to read them one at a time, starting with the first trademark, which is 
often uses symbolism and metaphorical techniques to portray circular storylines. So that's the first one. Second, trademark. Frequently features characters doing drugs and, uh, and experiencing deeply emotional transformations. That's the second one. And then third, trademark. Uses only his last name for his film by credit in the form of Un Film de Almodovar. Um, I, I'm trying my best on the pronunciation, I promise you. Um, and I also promise you it's not nearly good enough. But who here will be good enough uh, to pick out the fake trademark? Will it be Aaron? What's your guess? Uh, yeah, not me, as I have not seen any of his movies, despite being hounded to for, at this point, years. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, I'm going to go with B. B sounds about right. Aaron's, Aaron's going to go with B. Um, go B. Uh, I regret that. Harry, what's your guess? First of all, you got to see it on the Dovar movies, dude. They're so No, good. I know. You've you've often been the one saying okay. it, so I, I you uh, know... I, I know. I'm... I'm of two minds here. Uh, I can't remember if I've seen his full name in movies, but I feel like A is much more ripe for sort of like Cody shenanigans. Um, I think I'm going to go with A because I feel like you changed one word. Like maybe it's not circular or something. Okay. Uh, I've locked in Harry for A and Natalie. What do you think? I'm I'm based on the couple that I've watched leaning more toward B um, because I, I do remember his uh, it is very prominent in pretty much all of the marketing for at least the last couple of ones that I have seen uh, within the, the time period where I would have actively followed his work that I do know C is for sure true, um, but I'm, I'm leaning B. All right. I'll lock you in for B. Uh, the fake trademark is indeed B. Uh, the um, yeah, so that's I and you know what I made that one up from scratch and I got called out on it. Dude, by two it's of a, the three, of you. It's a good one though because it's not not true. I mean, drug use fe- figures into like many of his movies. And it's also that th- it's and that's that what's kept that, me away from it, to be quite honest, because I don't support that kind yeah. of behavior or activity. I've just noticed personal. that about you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. No, that uh, tough, tough but fair. Um, it can be a tough, a tough. Uh, Look, I'll to get drink over. several dozen beers a night, but I am not smoking weed, sir, and I do not yeah. put up with films that involve yeah. that kind of shit. Yeah, a bottle of Malort yeah. here and there. Um, oh, yeah. no, and, yes. and and I also tried to do the thing where like IMDb weirdly, um, I guess because dep- they're all user submitted, and sometimes people try to cram in multiple like things per entry. So it's like characters doing drugs and like undergoing narrative arcs well yeah that's <laughs> that's just what, that's what happens that. when you do drugs dude you go down narrative arcs that's why they're yeah, so popular. Or emotional arcs yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah, because he, you have it you all of a sudden you've got a narrative arc yeah uh mix that around and you got yourself a narrative arc brewing um so that's hey we're moving right along here everybody's on the board after after two uh, questions, um, uh, Natalie's in the lead. Natalie's two for two. Um, just floating that out there. And Harry and Aaron are both on the board with one point. Uh, it's still very much anyone's game, isn't it? Um, I, I also regret that. Uh, for no- question three, we're going to head to uh, Return of the Jedi, which was directed by Richard Markwind. With him in mind, <clears throat> we're going to invoke the Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes, so I ask you all, what percentage of Richard Markwind's directed works abide by the Rashomon rule? Aaron. 
I, I know we're all very well familiar with this man's filmography. That's why I picked him um, for this question. I'm very aware of one film and his filmography. Uh, can I? I'm at a That's 0%. Fair. I'm going with the extreme 0%. Let's just say none. Right, 0%. Um, potentially the start of covering a, a spread, potentially not. We'll see. Um, Harry's guess will inform that a little more intimately. Harry, what do you think? Damn, I, I don't think I know a single one of this motherfucker's movies except for Return of the Jedi. I feel bad because, like, I think Return of the Jedi kind of gets a bad rap, but it is the worst of the original trilogy. Yeah, like, of course. Pretty it's clearly. It's fine, no, it's, it's good. Yeah. I, I like it, There's but, shit, you man. know. It's yeah. it's better than any of the you know the, um, the Abrams them, movies. Literally, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, I'm gonna go with twenty percent. Twenty percent says Harry and um, Natalie as the Richard Markwind uh, filmography expert here. Uh, <laughs> I can't say any of these with a straight face. Uh, yeah, I will just say he has no uh, like movies I have heard of also outside of Return of the Jedi. So I'm just putting that out there. But Natalie, what do you what do you think for this? Hmm. I'm I'm of a couple of different rides where like similarly I do not know this man whatsoever. Um, and so my my inclination would be to go lower. Um, I'm going to say. Let, I'm going to hedge my bets with a nice, cozy 5%. All right. 5% says Natalie. And so um, doing some quick mental math. Okay, yeah, easy. Uh, of the nine films that Letterboxd tells me that Mark Wind has directed, including Return of the Jedi, one of them comes in at or under 88 minutes, which gets us to 11.111 repeating, of course, percentage points. Uh, and Natalie, uh, with by the edge of a few percentage points, comes away with the point. Three for three, a potential running of the gauntlet. Uh, ga- gauntlet? A, a gauntlet. Um, a gauntlet. I'm becoming undead. For question four, we honor one of the greatest returns of all time. And that's, of course, Batman Returns. Uh, within the year of its release, uh, release, which was 1992, what place did Matt, uh, Batman Returns... I'm inserting ends into all sorts of fun words. Batman Returns, what place did that movie occupy on the list of top grossing films in the year 1992? And I bring up box office because I know... Outside of Richard Marquand's filmography, it's our most favorite subject in the whole wide world. Um, so within the year, Aaron, uh, 1992, what yeah. what did it place on that list of top grossing films? I actually do like the box office. I don't know if that was a dig, but I, I they are the ones I'm the best at. And also, I enjoy them in a sick well, way. Well, usually when I say them, I see a bunch of like Zencaster um, it's because Harry is too good Everybody's going like, oh, no. Harry doesn't care about money. such financial money. He's an, art, yeah. he's an artiste. But me, a guy like me, I'm business school, all about the right? money. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, a three, third, the third. It was the third. All right, the third. I'm locking Aaron in with that. Uh, Harry, what's your pick for this? Damn it, that's a good fucking guess too. Because like, it's this is such a good question, Cody. Because like, Batman Returns is like a big deal, but also it's weird, and it was also like very weirdly received, right? And like, Burton was like jettisoned off the projects. I'm gonna go yeah. because I'm a, a coward. I'm gonna go with four, number four, just to sort of cut off uh, Aaron at the knees here. You're fucking me here, Harry. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, Jason will clip that once he gets back from assignment. Uh, Natalie, what do you think is the answer to this? Where does it slot? 
Uh, I'm of two minds because on the one hand, I, I'm feeling Harry's kind of like hedging of the bets, but I'm also silently thinking to myself, like what else that was notable in terms of like, you know, yeah, like property came out in Dances 1982. With came out in um, 92, I think. That movie would have absolutely made more money though. It made $8 yeah. billion. Oh, dollars. Was it? Okay. I think you're right. <laughs> I think it was 90 though. You're right. Okay. So nothing um, came out in 92. There's, there's probably something I'm forgetting, but I'm going to... I feel like at this this point in the proceedings, I think I can risk it by trying to stake my place at number two. Right, Natalie's going you. with number two. <laughs> I'm, I'm fucked, but I forgive you. <laughs> uh, going by domestic gross in the year 1992, uh, Batman Returns was the number one grossing film uh yeah wow everybody backed away from the cameras in in surprise you never at the do same that, that to was be magical. fair that's a tricky cody trick that even i did uh, not anticipate and uh that's you know it's perhaps even more maybe not even more tricky um the fact that we went by uh domestic gross explicitly in the explicitly in the year 1992 because if we expand it to um still films released in 92 but like you know leak over leak over you know a leftover um overflow release dates in 1993 films like aladdin and home alone 2 lost in new york would overtake um batman returns uh with box office but uh in the year 1992 <laughs> wait home alone 2 made one. more money than batman returns yeah oh yeah home, Al- home yeah, alone was so big dude dude that's yeah, wild <laughs> absolutely yeah it, Parents brought their kids to watch the world's most oppressive family. They brought them in like gangbusters. You kidding me? I guess it's just like superheroes really were not what they are today back then, huh? Not until like Iron Man or whatever. Uh, Iron Man or whatever, uh, if by whatever you mean Natalie, who's um, uh, our own superhero going four for four. Uh, The gauntlet has almost been fully run. We'll see. Uh, I guess... uh, should I'll still say it's still very much anybody's game as we head into the fifth and final question. Uh, and we will, uh, well, maybe, yeah, yeah. You know what? For the purposes of dramatic suspense, we'll say it's anybody's game. Uh, we're going to call upon the Lord of the Rings, the return of the King. And, uh, my question for you all to think on is this, how many letterboxed users, um, shout out to letterboxd. This is free ad space. Uh, how many letterboxd users have return of the King as one of their top four films, uh, is designated in their profiles. You know, it's, you create your profile, you pick four of your favorite movies. Um, how many letterboxd users are, and how many letterboxd profiles rather have return of the King as one of their top four films round to the nearest thousand that much. I'll say just to make it easier for everybody round to the nearest thousand, uh, and whomever is closest to the actual amount will get three points, two points for the next closest, and then one point for the um, the third person. Uh, so with that in mind, Aaron, how many letterbox profiles are, are horned for Return of the King? Oh, this is... Um, to the nearest thousand. As, as the only person I've seen with Too Fast, Too Furious in their top four films... Uh, I'm, I'm going to say, I don't, I have no, there's no anchor that I can use to like steer my guess. Yeah. I'm going to go 12,000 maybe. That seems like so many fucking people to put that as one of their top four, but yeah, 12,000. Okay. 12,000 locking it in, etching it in a concrete slab. That's on the mountain where I etch all the other answers on other concrete slabs. Uh, Harry, what guess can I etch in this stone for you? 
I, I'm just going to assume that all Letterboxd users have the right opinion, which is that Fellowship is the best of those three movies. So if you're going to cut, baby, that's the way to go. If you were going to put one of them on your watch list or on your top favorites, why would you ever put Return of the King when you could just put Fellowship? Unless you had both Fellowship Unless and you Return have of the King, all three of the films, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which like respectable. Honestly, there's not a bad movie among them. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, five thousand. Five thousand. All right, 5,000 says Harry. Um, tiptoeing away from that, uh, Two Towers Erasure, the best of the trilogy. Uh, Natalie, what's your, your guess for this one? Um, my thought was initially actually higher than what I'm going to guess, uh, just based on what I've seen in terms of uh, there, there have been points in time where I like stats nerd that I am had been looking at, like, say, the numbers of quote unquote fans as Letterboxd refers to them uh, for certain movies and basing this is like one of the most like popular and lauded movies of its time. Um, I'm going to say a nice comfy 14,000. So if I'm a little low, it's not the worst thing, but if I'm under guessing it, Hey, I guess the highest. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, sound logic. And I legitimately always like it when people uh, articulate their thought process. And thanks to all three of you, for doing so, I'm just doing some tabulating in the background, and uh, I don't know if Cody's final... ever thanked me for articulating my thought process, but okay, Cody, go d- please go on. I'm, yeah, that's fair. I'm always yeah, I, I'm always thankful. It's yeah. well, listen, a, we're we're, we're a month out from Thanksgiving, Harry, and I'm being this thankful. It's assumed in a, in a sense, is not the podcast a way of articulate or thanking people for articulating their thought processes. Oh, that made me so happy and bummed me out so much at the same time. Uh, but <laughs> you're 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 right. Um, and who is right here? Well, I, I'll tell you. As of October twenty second, in the year of our Lord um, twenty twenty two, The Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King is in the top four films of twenty four thousand Letterboxed profiles. Uh, Natalie successfully ran the gauntlet and got three points for that question, uh, which, uh, which puts her at seven. Aaron, uh, comes away with three points for the game. Harry at two. Um, thank you. This has been return love. Natalie, the floor is yours to, to pop off. Um, you know, uh, use this space to do what you will before we actually get to the, the end of the episode where you can also plug more things. Uh, as in like, I, this is my chance to showboat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, um, if you know, if, if any of your competitors said something uh, particularly off. offensive, or you know, Aaron and Harry were you know taunting and oh. the saying the rudest. Oh man, the rudest things in the in the chat. You know, you listeners wouldn't even believe the types of things they were saying. Um, so if you ever you know want to get back at them, you know, uh, symbolic retribution, um, whatever you, whatever you might want to do, the floor is yours. I I am here for healthy competition, and so I'm going to very respectfully uh, thank my cohorts and competitors for giving up a good fight and uh, giving me the strategic advantage of going last to tabulate my guesses correctly. (laughs) Um, I would also like to thank Harry for shouting out my girlfriend, Abby, who is uh, just darted past uh, in this Airbnb that we're currently staying in as I'm recording this episode. So thank you for Abby, past guest. uh, Former guest. Yeah, exactly. Also, thank you so much for not saying I'm all for healthy competition. So let me know when I get some, because I totally thought that's where we, we were going with that. So, <laughs> but yeah, masterfully done. Uh, five for five. It's a it's a rarity because we're pretty dumb about movie trivia. So really exciting to have somebody who actually knows what the fuck they're talking about. Hell yeah! Oh, Aaron. 
You got something? You got some, Aaron? No. You gonna? You gonna? Mm-hmm. I thought okay. Harry was gonna just slide into a sign off for the episode, so I was like, "Oh, I've oh. been Harry." Mackie. Oh, no, 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 we're, no, come, we're not no, because the next thing is the awkward handoff where I, I gotta. What does Jason say? Oh, well, thank you, Cody, for ending our episodes on a better note than they started. Um, that was not my best Jason impression. Um, and I guess a big. Much more sincerely formal thank you uh, to Natalie for for being our special guest for this episode. Uh, Natalie, do you have anything to plug for the fine folks at home? Um, not particularly at the moment. I've been uh, very busy with uh, writing stuff, which you can find a collection of uh, as I post semi-regularly on my Twitter at Natalie's Not In It. Um, had some stuff with... Uh, paste and stereo gum and some of those good old places uh mostly talking about uh a big thing for me recently has been writing and interviewing folks whose albums just turned 20 which is a very weird thing to do as somebody who is 28 and that was not around for those albums existence when they they first came out um and if you if you drop me a follow, I will say there will be a little something that is uh, completely different uh, that I will be sharing this coming Thursday via a site that I have never written for before. So stay tuned on that. Yeah, big stay tuned. Thank you. Wow. Uh, well, I trust that um, Jason, when he gets to this, will put all the appropriate links and notes in the show notes. Um, we miss you, Jason. This is uh, difficult and weird. Um, but thank you so much again, Natalie. Uh, and thank you to our dear listeners uh, for tuning in. You can find us on Twitter at Trial of Podcast, and you can find the Trilon at Trilon.org. I'd recommend supporting them in any way you can. If you like movies and good vibes, then, honey, you've got a big storm coming uh, because they've they've got a great thing going, I think, and we all think. Uh, I believe by the time this episode drops, it'll be too late to see The Return of the Living Dead at the Trilon Cinema. Um, but worst case scenario, you can catch it on Tubi. Uh, Tubi, also, you're welcome for the free ad space. Um, get in touch with us. You know, maybe send us a little something. I stole the film uh, off the internet. Sorry, uh, continue. It, it, Aaron stole Thank the you. film off the internet. Um, you could go to Tubi, uh, and you should also still go to the Trilon and you know, like watch something different instead. It's a classic win-win scenario. Uh, but until that time, I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Yeah, uh, thanks so much, Natalie. Um, Natalie was very humble, but but she's an awesome music critic. Uh, she literally wrote about "You Forgot It" in People, the Broken Social Scene album recently, and, and you had to you interviewed those guys, right? Like that's a huge deal. That uh, was spe- like specifically one of them, but yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was completely wild. It was amazing. Um, so yeah, check that out. Uh, follow her on Twitter. Um, I've been Harry Mack, and you can follow me on Twitter. I don't have nearly as exciting things going on, but you know, uh, you can find this podcast generally uh i'm at uh shiitake harry thank you my name is uh aaron you can find me on twitter at rb please i was gonna do a joke about uh making sure to go out there and support the film black adam in theaters but then you did that very nice plug of natalie's stuff and i was like well that makes me dude dude the hierarchy of power in the dc universe has changed shifting yes Uh, dwayne the rock johnson is is bringing the dceu back so in its own way In its own way, Return of the Living Dead is about the hierarchy of power shifting within the Reagan universe. Natalie, that's so right. That's so important. Yes. You know what else is important? To note that the events portrayed in this film are all true. The names are real names of real people and real organizations. (laughs) 